If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. On time, on target. Benedetta to Argentieri is in studio. Who? It's been a while. The last time that we had you on, you and Jack were engaged and you were officially married for quite some time now, quite a few months. But as I said to Jack, it was a great wedding. I was glad to be there. Um, I feel like I, I should mention. I feel like some of your family members during um, Jim West's best best man speech were like, "All right, is this guy going to end this soon?" Because <laughs> it, it went on pretty long. Yeah, I did. But they were, yeah, puzzled, I would say. They didn't really understand what he was saying, so it was good. Yeah, some of them were even turning to me. I don't know if they were your friends or family, and they were like, who is this guy? (laughs) Um, Which I remember Richard turned to them, and Richard is telling them, he's like, this guy's been in, I don't know how many, he's like 300 street fights. Probably (laughs) true, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so, and actually, now I have to wonder, with that best man speech, what did you do with this huge rock that he gave you? Because during the speech, he was we, like, I want this to we be have a it. We have stone. it at home. We, we, I'm still looking for a place to put it. Yeah, because my feeling was, what does he expect Benny to do with this rock that he brought? Well, I mean, if we had a garden or something, it would be okay, but we live in New York, so, like, where am I? Yeah. Yeah, it's but still, I just mean, you're not going to carry this around on your wedding. and No, it's, <laughs> it's still sort of waiting for a home, I think. You know, we'll, we'll figure out a place for it eventually. Yeah, we would find a place. Well, getting into everything, um, the last time we had you on, you were talking about Our War, um, which spotlighted three Westerners who joined the Kurds in northern Syria. At the time when we were asking, like, where could people see this, there wasn't really anywhere they could see it. But now... And I didn't realize this until I was just like looking this up. You could see it on an Amazon Prime if you're on Amazon, but if you're an Amazon Prime member, it's for free on there, which is great. Correct. Yes, it was. It's good because at least we have some distribution and people can go and watch it. Uh, we're happy about it. What's the feedback been like? Because I think once something's on Amazon Prime and it's free, you're seeing a whole audience that probably wouldn't necessarily watch this who who are learning about a subject that they're not really familiar with. I would say that the feedbacks are kind of good and it's interesting to see, but in general, we always had the five stars, so it's fine. (laughs) And I wasn't really tracking that. I haven't been tracking, you know, the development too much because I'm so busy with the new documentary. So, you know. And the new documentary, I should say, is I Am the Revolution, um, and I remember th- this made me wonder. So the, the the film company that you're now the co-founder of is Possible Film. 
I was wondering if the name came from when we had you on and you said you were with these women uh, doing some filming in Syria, uh, in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. We were like, is this going to be a documentary? And I think you were like, possibly. Is that the origin of the name? No. You were like a possible film. <laughs> and then I wondered if that's how the name came about. No, the name, oh, actually the name is possible, but possibile in Italian because we make the impossible possible. This is basically what... You know what's the idea behind this um, the the company's brand, and uh, yeah, that it comes from that. But it comes from the first movie because uh, we found ourselves in very awkward situations, and then we kind of joked around and said, "Okay, we made the impossible possible." So here it is. Makes sense. I'm I'm glad the documentary is finally available for people to see. Uh, so many people have asked me like. Because of, probably because you've been on the show before, and they they're always asking me where can we see Benny's documentary. I'm like, uh, for the longest time, it's like you can't. <laughs> yeah, sometimes these things have their kind of own life, so it takes a little bit of time once the film is released to actually end up in a distribution or in a platform where people can see it. Because you know, it has kind of its own cycle. But I'm really glad that he kind of ended up on Amazon because it's also worldwide, by the way, so you actually can watch it from anywhere. And uh, at least people have a way to watch it, you know? Absolutely. So uh, talk about I Am the Revolution. Just want to hear what it's about and, and how it how the whole idea came about. So they, uh, it is something that I've been sitting on for a kind of a long time since I started, I think, since... 2015, and uh, when I was on the front lines with all the women guerrillas and stuff, and I realized that, that there were like a lot of women pick, picking up new roles, especially in conflict areas. And it's not just about fighting per se, but like activism or politicians uh, that they were aiming to empowering women in these areas where you know rights and women's rights are non-existent basically. And I thought it was very interesting. And um, and then, you know, like straight after we finished and presented the previous movie, Our War, we were like, OK, what should we do? And then uh, I think I went another time to Syria again. And then I said, OK, this is it could be a good movie. And to explain to people that sometimes, you know, uh, the the image of woman presented by the media mainstreams is not necessarily you know the reality on the ground because if you think about any news feed or you know the things about talking about women they're usually about ra- how you know they were badly raped or violent or you know or they were subject to violence and everything and you always have this image of veiled woman crying, often in refugee camps uh, with children, and not much more. Instead, this film challenges like our preconception of a woman in the Middle East, and it shows another reality that it is on the ground. And it's shot, and it is shot in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan by an old woman crew. And it was such a great fun you know, an important job that we did. Also because by being an all-woman crew allowed us to have unprecedented access to a lot of people. So when we spent some time with Rajda Filat, that maybe is one of the person that your listeners might know better uh, because she's the general, she's the commander, main commander of the Raqqa operation, 
she was like very generous with her time and she was puzzled by the fact that we were all you know women going on the front lines with her and <laughs> it was actually quite fun yeah I can imagine you see the expression on her face in <laughs> some, some of the footage. She has, but that, it's also she's carrying the burden of being, you know, the commander for that entire theater. Absolutely. I mean, she she was commanding 60,000 men and women, and it's a lot of people, plus coordinating with the U.S. Army on the ground. She She's quite a character, I ought to say. But anyway, to, you know, go back to your original question, so we have Rajda Filat, who is the um, commander. Then we have uh, Yanar Mohammed, who is an activist in Baghdad. And then Salai Gaffer, who is um, a politician and the first woman spokesperson for the Solidarity Party of Afghanistan. And uh, the three of them, although they do not actually know each other personally, they know of each other. And they are all agreeing that, you know, this is a new momentum. And uh, if women do not, you know, uh, fight for their rights now, they will basically be slaves forever. And the situation for women in places like Afghanistan is really, really bad. I mean, I was shocked because I knew it's very different when you see data from like the UN or whatever organizations that tells you that one bride out of two, they are forced and underage to get married or, you know, that 87 percent of women in Afghanistan, uh, um, they they are subject to violence and it's huge number. But then you see the reality, you see how, you know, little they have or like just you know 14% of women in Afghanistan can actually read and it's crazy it's insane especially if you think you know that international coalition and they are in Afghanistan since 2001 and so little has been done and this is one of the main points that billion of dollars have been poured into Afghanistan to actually try and help the condition of women but because of the corruption of not just the Afghani people, but also the organizations that get this money, nothing has been done on the ground. And you wonder, I know that, you know, Jack is not very keen on Afghanistan as a country, probably because of his own experience on the ground, but you go around and uh, there is nothing in Kabul. There is no paved streets. And it's like... and. Again, the Americans spent like more than Marshall plans after World War II, and there is nothing. It's it's incredible, incredible. Where did the money go? Same question we have with Iraq. Where did all the money go? But you see, in Iraq, I think it's different, and I think that the huge difference is the oil lobby. I'm sorry, I'm being very cynical here, but you know, the oil industry, in order to work, they need infrastructure such as roads or airports or anything you can think of. Ports. Ports, exactly. Afghanistan's not going to have many of those, though. No, of course. But you know, if you don't, if you don't have like a lobby in Washington saying, "Hey, guys, we paid for you know this high road from I don't know Baghdad to Basra, and where is it?" And the reason. Well, you, you know, know, we did try to build a railroad in Afghanistan. I know. A I know. Very interesting story behind that. It is actually this. But anyway, so because people might want to hear. 
I don't have the the whole all the information at my fingertips. I wrote an article on Softrep about how we not built, but we helped restore the railroad in Iraq after the invasion in two thousand three, and that was like army. Um, Army railroaders and engineers, they did a really good job with that. But they also tried to build a railroad in um, Afghanistan. Previously, there was just a small little railroad. I think it went, it was like for the presidential palace or something. It was like a couple kilometers long. Um, But these guys, they wanted to build, um, I don't know if it was like 70 or 80 kilometers of railroad, but I think most of it was ended ended up being built um, by like Central Asian engineers from like Uzbekistan or something like that. And I don't, I don't know how much it even runs at the moment. So that, I, I'm sorry I don't have all my facts at my fingertips sure. right now, but there is a very interesting story about how all that came together. Yeah, the idea was to actually build a railroad in For order mining. To, to, yes, in order to connect all the main cities of, like, in central Afghanistan. And because of the way... It, it was a railroad that has been there for, like, centuries, but because of the war and the conflict... A railroad and for centuries? Yeah. It was, like, because of the Silk Road and everything, you kind of needed... You know, Afghanistan was a part of the Silk Road for a very, very long time. And um, so the idea was to connect all the main, like, cities, like Helmand, Kabul, and everything. The problem is that each of this, like... Um, of, of these uh, cities, they're controlled by different tribes or different, you know, like, I don't know, what, how would you call them? Warlords. Warlords, <laughs> yeah, warlords, <laughs> drug lords and everything. And uh, my understanding, I actually read something on Vox about it, like, not long ago. It was must have been, like, a month ago. And uh, But because of the corruptions and everything, it was, like, literally impossible to build. Afghanistan, I have to say, it's a very, very interesting country, and it's one of the most beautiful places I have been. I've said it before, you know, if you took away the automobile, the cell phone, and the AK-47, Afghanistan would be literally like the times of Jesus. I've been into places like in Jalalabad, in Lakman province, which is like very close to Pakistan. It's, it's like another area. Yeah, they're living like they're in the first century AD. Yeah, I was like, actually, I w- we were sleeping in this like compound and it was the only place with electricity and running water in, in the area because actually a Spanish engineer went there with an organization to actually build the electricity and the water through like solar system and panel. And this is another thing, and then I'll stop about Afghanistan, is that they are uh, really keen on putting like solar panel for electricity because some areas are so rural and so remote that it's very, very difficult to get electricity there. So they're buying uh, the panels from the Chinese and the Chinese in two in the past three or four years they increased the price of each solar panel from seventy dollars to two hundred, making wow. it very difficult for anybody to have it. Well, I mean at the end of the day I think China is gonna be the big winner in both Afghanistan and Iraq. They're gonna have a long term plan, they're gonna sit back, they're gonna get all the oil contracts and mineral extraction and we're the ones that foot the bill. For, and all that, and all the bills, all the money we pay, it ends up going into corruption. We end up funding warlords. I wonder, you know, like I haven't been tracking that much lately that story, but uh, Trump, President Trump, wanted to do this uh, reconstru- all for reconstruction for Iraq, and I don't know where they are at. So basically, buying uh, 
really, really cheap uh, uh, oil from Iraq, and in exchange, most probably the World Bank or whoever, build again, rebuild Iraq after the war on ISIS. Like, it's hard not to laugh. Like, I don't want to laugh because, like, the amount of, like, people that touches and impacts and how horrible it is, but it's hard not to laugh after we've sunk billions and billions and billions of dollars into that country. Yeah. What's possibly going to come out of that? Throw, throw I, yeah. another few billion at it. What's what's that? Yeah, it's not that you know. Like I, the plan is yes to throw a couple of billions, but then you have uh, thousands of barrels for a quarter of the price. So it kind of it's worth. Well, yeah, yeah but I mean, at that, at that point, it's really just a bribe. I mean, let's call it what it is. No, well, they are actually selling the oil for a quarter of the price. So right. it's not that you know. The the winner here is the United States, not Iraq. I, I was I don't uh. well. It's debatable who who really wins in that situation. But what's interesting to me, you know, just look from the outside looking in at, at people who have expertise on the subject and people that we've had on this show. There's a lot of conflict on what we do, you know, because we've had guys on who I would say are experts on both ends who say that we need to be there long term possibly centuries, and then there's other people we've had on who were like, you know, there's nothing we could further do at, the, at this point. I mean, right now what we're trying to do is strike the balance, right? We're trying to fight war on the cheap. You know, we're not having our entire military deployed over there. We're not fighting, like, large-scale battles. We're just trying to have a smaller troop commitment to try to stop the entire region from, you know, slipping into chaos, which ends up affecting us. So, I mean, the other the other extreme of, like, just not engaging with that part of the world, I mean, I don't think that's going to work either. I mean, that's that's what, you know, we ended up with 9-11 the last time we did that. I would agree with you, but then you look at Afghanistan, and in Afghanistan now the latest figures from BBC Persian is that the Taliban control 72% of Afghanistan. Yeah, and, the I war mean, is a dismal failure. There's no question. What's the point? And, you know, don't you think that, I don't know, like troops in Afghanistan, of course, the Afghani government would not agree with me in any ways because they want Americans to stay. But, you know, what is the point? And, and I, in a way, I was... Uh, hearing this rumor that now the Taliban's are trying to negotiate with the U.S. They're saying, why don't we go back to where we were like in 2001? At the end of the day, you know, you don't control anything anymore. I mean, and it's crazy. It's insane. And if you think about 17 years of war and nothing has changed, literally nothing has changed. No, we're fighting the same war we were 17 years ago. So, I mean, like a lot of debatable again, you know, but a lot of Afghanis say, well, at this point, you might as well go. What's the point of having you here? Yeah, I agree. Pop smoke. Just like maintain a small counterterrorism presence, you know, when you get to, you know, groups like Al Qaeda coming in there, just drop some smart bombs on them and walk away. Also, by the way, uh, ISIS and the Taliban are fighting like crazy in a lot of areas in order to have the hegemony, you know, on the population. And it's not that they don't have their own problems. They do very much so. Well, the ISIS thing is weird, though, because a lot of those ISIS dudes are like rebranded Taliban elements because ISIS became the cool new thing. And it was also a way to brand, um, well, rebrand themselves, but to like get the Americans to come fight them. 
Sure, but there is also an element of ideology which is very different into the interpretation of the Quran in which, you know, ISIS, it, it, it's really weird to say, ISIS is more extreme than the Taliban yeah, for certain yeah. things. And, uh, and therefore, it's a question of, yes, and a lot of people from the Taliban just became and turned into ISIS, but nonetheless, it's a question of, you know, who is going to control this or that area. And there was, we passed through like a valet in which, you know, our driver said, okay, we're a little bit late. It was 4.30 and we should be out, uh, you know, over here by five o'clock because once dark comes, they start fighting each other on the same mountains for the control of this road. <laughs> I was like, okay. Let him have at it. You know, at the moment, the the latest uh, development in Syria is the uh, the Turkish military encircling it seems uh, Afrin, and you know Afrin we've talked about it on the show many times, but there are three cantons of you know Kurdish Syria in northern Syria, uh, you know there's Kobani, uh, what is it, Jazera, Sizra, Sizra, uh, and um, and Afrin. And Afrin was always kind of like the one that was isolated. It was like an enclave. Uh, it was, you know, uh, uh, throughout the war, I mean, it's been like incredibly difficult to get in and out of that place, um, you know, because we looked at potentially going there at some point. And like the only solution I could figure out was to like charter a plane and parachute in because we as in like, me and you. Yes. Uh. Well, you don't remember those conversations? <laughs> yeah, of course I do. I just wanted to make it sure, you know, that the listeners knew what <laughs> They what were, we're um, so anyway, my, my only point there was that it's always been this like isolated um, canton and the Kurds tried really hard and they wanted to connect Kobani to Afrin, um, but the Turks had always maintained this corridor. I mean, it was like the jihadi corridor going down through the, through the center in between the two um, where they could, you know, run ISIS guys back and forth, run guns back and forth. And there was some really vicious fighting going back uh, back and forth for that little stretch of land because that was like the corridor that connects Syria to Turkey. Um, and the Kurds had controlled everything else along uh, the, the Turkish-Syrian border except for that little stretch of land. Um, but now we're seeing the Turks move in much more aggressively than they had in the past. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a very interesting situation. As you said, you know, we tried to... to go there and there were always ways because to get there somehow smuggling tunnels you know that kind of things and the interesting thing about offering that for the longest time i mean let's just remind uh, that uh, our listeners that we are entering into the eighth year of the syrian uh, conflict. It's eight years. It's a really long time now. And for the longest time, Afrin was like a safe place for literally one million refugees. Uh, so all the people coming from Aleppo and, you know, or from the east coast of... Is it east it would of be the, the west coast, the west of, coast Syria? of Syria? From the I mean, I'm talking Latakia, Homs, yeah, yeah. all that kind of, you know, part that has been under... Uh, regime attack and everything, they all flooded to Afrin. And Afrin is a place, you know, apparently extremely beautiful with a lot of uh, olive oil, olive, uh, olive trees and with internal kind of economy. And people were able to stay there and uh, live more or less in peace, uh, be, you know. And, um, 
And then the Turks decided on January, I think, 15th to start this operation called the Olive Branch Operation. And they basically wanted to retake Afrin from the Kurds, but in Paris, like, over 1 million people, because you have 1 million refugees plus 300,000 people of Afrin, and uh, it's apparently like nobody from the international community really stood up and said, hey, what are you doing? Uh, and, and just a little bit of like background information. So the other two cantons in Syria are kind of under the United States protective umbrella because we have troops there. Um, we maintain a presence there. Afrin, we have never really had, has never really been under that umbrella. And if you recall um, during the Monbij offensive, Joe Biden even said something like that. He's like, look, the deal was we make the offensive, we retake those areas, and then the Kurds have to withdraw back across the river. There was a a policy decision that was made, and that's why you also saw in the past it seemed like, um, and the Kurds made some uh, statements to the effect that they were coordinating airstrikes with the Russians around Afrin rather than with the United States because we wouldn't provide our support in that area. Yeah, I think that more, I think that especially for Afrin, the Kurds realized that because of the U.S. policy, as you just said, also, you know, it's like they kind of had to deal with the people on the ground. Yeah, and on, on this side, on that side of Syria, that side of Syria is controlled by Russia. And it is true. You know, now you have, uh, I don't know, all the west coast of Syria that is being retaken because of the Russian interve- intervention. Otherwise, Assad and the Syrian regime would have never been able to retake yeah. that side. And meanwhile, impossible. meanwhile, the Turkish government's never going to accept a Kurdish state on their southern border. I mean, that's just unacceptable for this government and the, the Erdogan regime as it stands today. For sure, for sure, it is. But it, it is also, you know, it's like, I, I think it... It raises questions about the legality, quote unquote, of this intervention by Turkey that is still a NATO member and of invading another country. Because no matter what, you know, anybody else's, like the Americans and Russia's, they haven't really invaded the country. Nobody, and the, the Russians were invited by the Syrian regime. And now the Syrian regime finds itself with a quote-unquote invader in it on its well, own thing, but with the, with the knowledge that they do not have the troops to send to Afrin in order to quote-unquote protect the, uh, their people because all the army is in Ghouta. Uh, on the at the door of Damascus and trying to retake that part. And, and the Syrian army is just so shaky after eight years. I mean, it's like we've, we've all heard the stories about, uh, you know, they pull the bus up to the university the first day of class and put all the 18-year-olds on there like, welcome to the army, guys. So, I mean, the, the Syrian army is not like really in any shape to go and duke it out with the Turkish military, I don't think. No, and also there are a lot of rumors and, you know, um, documented uh, uh, news about Turkey deploying former ISIS people into this. Oh, well, tribe. yeah, they're, they're using yeah. ISIS. Uh, those Islamists and the FSA are all like proxy no, forces. No, FSA, no. But Jalal al Sham, like Nusra people, and all their proxy forces and everything. 
But the good thing, or, you know, yes, the good thing is all the Arabs that have been fighting with the Kurds to retake Raqqa, the former capital of the Islamic State, are now moving to offering in order to help out the Kurds, saying, okay, you helped us to retake Raqqa because Raqqa is not part of Rojava, it's not part of the cantons, it was like, you it's know, Arab, yeah. it's, and it will continue to stay in Arab control. And they're going to help out. But in the meantime, at least, by the way, like hundreds of people have died. Um, we saw the video that the software published yesterday how, you know, Turkey is just shelling you know, civilians in the city center of Afrin and uh, an airstrike, anything. So, I mean, and it's amazing how also in general public opinion is very focused on Ghouta and rightly so. But nothing is being said about, you know, offering and what's going on. And it's incredible. Well, that's why I was making a comment that, like, when Aleppo was going down, we were just bombarded with these Mm Al-Qaeda activists that were, like, having they were appearing on CNN and stuff every day. It was was incredible. But with Afrin, we're hearing very little. You know, yeah. Sorry. Uh, No, well, I was just going to ask, and we'll get back to it, but... How long has it been since you were in Syria and, and met with Assad? Like two or three years? No. It was, like, it was 2016 that we were there? What? In Damascus? In Damascus, 2016? Yeah. Yeah, so it's about two, two years. Two years. Yeah. One year and a half, yes. I'm wondering if... So when you got to meet with Assad along with a few other select journalists... I'm wondering if your opinion has changed in like the past couple of years from what you how you originally felt at that time. About the war in general? Yeah, about the war, about the chemical weapons, about what needs to be done with Assad. Uh, I wouldn't say my opinion has really changed about it. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable, incredibly difficult situation, and there aren't any clear answers. Um, I, I mean, I still think that, you know, Assad is really all Syria has in a sense. I mean, you, you can, like I said at the time when I was over there, you can remove Assad, but okay, great. You know what? What now? Um, and in a time, you're not going to remove him or remove his government and build like some sort of like progressive, you know, the you know Jeffersonian democracy in Syria in the middle of a civil war. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Um, and you know, some people, I, I think that's probably the difference between between my opinion and that of an activist. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's kind of my thoughts on it. As far, but I mean, the war is so incredibly complicated. It's like my opinion on which aspect of which front and yeah. which groups. I mean, it, it's it goes back and forth. I think the big challenge is for the Syrian government to figure out how to reintegrate all of these areas into you know back into the the country that we used to know as Syria in 2012. That country died. It doesn't exist anymore. And how you piece it back, how you piece something, some new country back together is really the um, the important question. And it's like, you know, we tried to, uh, I mean, I know I was talking about it, and I'm sure some others were too. You know, we got so fixated on ISIS, people didn't ask themselves a the question of well, what comes after that. Yeah, sorry. So uh, well, what were you going to say, Benny? Because no, I, was just I don't know. Well, I don't remember. <laughs> I think, you know, it's like it, I was looking at some new, you know, Syria is a very, is a black hole of information in so many ways. You know, the latest uh, data we have about how many people died, for instance. 
it's from 2015. So we're talking about three years ago. Yeah. And three years ago, it was half a million people. So now we know that I absolutely agree with Jack when he says that the country that we have known as Syria doesn't exist anymore. Also bear in mind that right now there are more Syrian refugees outside the country than inside the country. So, and uh, everything, you know, the main places have been destroyed. The economy is crippled. I have no idea. And this is very interesting because in 2011, the projection of growth for Syria was the best throughout the Middle East, you know, and it's very interesting to, to, to see how things can change and can rapidly change. Now, you can remove Assad. Of course, you know, something has, be, has to be done somehow, but you can remove Assad, but the regime is going to be very much there. The point here right now is that Syria doesn't have the capacity anymore to manage and control the whole territory as it, as a whole. So, you know, the, the point... Even the areas that they say they've reclaimed, as we experienced ourselves, they're not really under government authority, like the way New York City is under U.S. government control and, you know, the institutions of the state are present here. It's like, okay, they, you know, on paper... That area of Syria might belong to the government again, but in reality, there's a militia on the ground that they cut some sort of deal with. Yeah, but I think that this was common also for before, that there were like certain areas controlled and managed by the local tribes. I'm sure. I'm not talking about big cities, but I'm talking about like very rural areas. So now the point now is how do you outsource something? And I listened to this very interesting talk about how, you know, it's like right now the Kurds are the only group, you know, that were able not just to uh, regain control and take the territories that they were interested in, but to actually manage it. And if you go to Rojava, you know, it's a place in which you, with a lot of problems, don't get me wrong, there are problems there. It's not that it's like heaven on earth and everything. There are a lot of contradictions. I mean, you're still at war and, you know, be, there is no position, which is something that I've been very, very vocal about. But at, this, at the end of the day, they live more or less in peace. They have a bureaucracy going on. There is a, a, a legal system and there is an inclusion system. So now I think that the main challenge for the Syrian regime is how can we outsource, you know, the bureaucracy of the state? How can we, because, of course, you have places like Idlib. Idlib is being a, a stronghold of jihadists, you know, in any single, in any, in different groups have been pushed there, and you still need to manage it because you cannot just leave it like this. How do you manage it? I think that democratic confederalism, this third, uh, as they call it, third way of democracy could be a way to still have a Syria as a whole, but at the same time have different groups managing a kind of a certain territory, if this makes sense, because... There is, there is no, you know, I mean, I don't see any other ways. And I think that, that there is a time after eight years of war that we, the international community has the obligation to find solutions to end this conflict. 
I, yeah, I think even the regime acknowledges that that they're going to have to. They're they're going to have to, you know, sort of. I mean, like in America, we would call it the notion of states' rights that you know individual provinces are going to have some sort of autonomy in exchange for also submitting themselves to a federated system. So I, I think they understand that. Um, but you know how it shakes out practically. Uh, is, I have it's no idea. Be I think you know that this. I I don't think that people are understanding. Beside you know what we could personally think about you know the Kurds and everything, but how you know important and and game changing this uh, olive branch operation is because let's say right now let's say that the, the Turks as you know, will be able to retake Afrin, and I think they will because they have the manpower, they have the you know, uh, the aerial power to do so. Uh, they they'll make massacre, but they they will. And then, what shall we do after that? Are they gonna be in control of that area? That does that mean that Syria, as uh, you know, the state is gonna give up Afrin and just you know, that's it. I don't think so. I don't think that the regime, especially you have a lot of people within the regime that are ultra-nationalist and say, no, Syria has to be, you know, protected and will have to continue as it is. Turkey's neo-Ottoman ambitions. Oh, no, they do. You know, I heard uh, that the Greek military was on alert because they're, they're really worried about uh, the Turks trying to take over some of those islands, that, like, archipelago that stretches through uh, between the two countries. Like they're, they're, I mean, maybe it's just an irrational fear, but, I mean... No, no, it's not. The, uh, actually, there has been, like, a several speech by President Erdogan, like, really stating that they should go back to the Ottoman Empire yeah. territory. And you're like, well, we are in 2018. What are you talking about? And there, yes, it's neo-Ottoman ambition. You, this is what it was trying to do in Iraq with Talafar and Mosul, claiming that, you know, it should be his. But <laughs> no, you know, the word has gone forward and uh, more than 100 years passed from the... you got to wonder about him, like, it's like you know. Does is his brain being eaten by syphilis? Like, why are you th- why are you thinking like this? There, well, there's a lot of uh, world leaders just currently who say a lot of stuff that sounds irrational to the rest of us. Yeah, we've I mean, completely different part of the world. But we've talked about Duterte. Rodrigo Duterte, who always comes up, uh, who's who's made crazy statements, and yeah, and of course you have Kim Jong Un, and it's like, how do you find? Uh, diplomatic relations or or anything with people who make statements like this. Yeah, I mean, and and then of course there's uh, Putin, and we talked about with when Jack Devine came on, you know, about how he's trying to rewrite the rules, um, trying to rewrite, you know, our, our accepted notion of you know what world order is. So how do you, you know, in, in this situation, how do we have diplomacy and how do countries interact with one another? I mean, that's. That's really the question of the next 100 years, I think. And that also goes to the discussion of, like, what's America's role in this? Do America yeah. have to continue being the world police? Is that is that a realistic thing with the amount of money that we've spent? And as you've talked about with Afghanistan, what results have we seen from this? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the main thing. What I mean, I'm a patient guy. If it, it takes 50 years to have a program in place or something like that, then so be it. But... I mean, we can see from 17 years, I mean, we, we really haven't had any impact. 
I think it's very interesting. There's been a number of articles on China and the new role. And because of the new White House policy, uh, it's been basically stepping back from certain kind of rights of inclusion, of democracy, and that how China in the past year has been able to reshape and rebrand their own like kind of They're democracy. Trying. They're trying because, you know, for the longest time, America has been, you know, the, the, the champions of exporting democracy on helping, you know, peoples and, again, of inclusion and stuff. And this has changed since 2016. And that gave room not just to China, but also to Russia in, to move more freely and convince, you know, that their policy is the best. Well, so yeah, I mean, it's not just about policing the world, but the whole package that comes with policing the world. It's, people have criticized that whole package for a long time as being neo-colonialism and all this other sort of stuff, imperialistic ambitions of the United States. The second we step away, you have communist China jumping in there. You have this uh, you know, kleptocratic Russian state jumping in there. So I mean, are these countries going to be better for? I'm not saying that. I'm just stating, you know, that what's going on on international level, because you know the United States stepping out from the Paris Accord. That there are all little things, you know, that are just uh, bringing to isolationism. The U.S. is becoming more and more and more isolated. And that also means that that role that has been, you know, fulfilled by the Americans for longest time and after World War II, now it's becoming vacant. And then, of course, you have other, you know, uh, you have other countries stepping up, superpowers. And the superpowers are those, China, America, and Russia. You know, there's only one global superpower. There are other rising powers. Yeah, but still, you know, if you are not anymore that kind of country. But yeah, I mean, for sure, China is a country that they see themselves that they should be the predominant hegemon in the world. And they should and they their plan is to displace the United States and kick us out of that role. Yeah. And is it unrealistic when you look at the amount of exports, when you look at the amount of money that we owe? Uh, you know, no, I, it's not unrealistic. And this is the—I mean, this is the really—I I know I've talked about it many times. I mean, this is the the issue that keeps me up at night. I mean, you look at what's going on in China and these like insane social experiments. I mean, it's not any exaggeration to say that it's Orwellian. Yeah, one child policy. Their social credit system. Uh, they're creating this like nightmare dictatorship um, that wants to harmonize and homogenize the population of the entire world into into one. Uh, it, it's the ideology of the human anthill. And I mean, that's probably the most concerning thing for me. Yeah. Just as we were saying in the, on the last episode that when people ask, like, what is the biggest threat to the U.S., you have said for many years that it's China. It's not a bunch of dudes wearing flip-flops with rusty AK-47s out in the desert. It just isn't. (laughs) It never has been. But but it's understandable why people would feel this way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, China didn't blow up the World Trade Center. So, I mean, people don't see it that way. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. not the same visual evidence out there. Right, right. Yeah, but the visual evidence sometimes are just visual evidence, meaning, you know, yes, of course, you know, the World Trade Center, don't get me wrong, it was, you know, disturbing a terrorist act and everything. 
but 2,000 people have died. And uh, it was a symbol. It's a symbol of the world changing. But then, you know, Al-Qaeda is not the biggest threat. And it hasn't been, not even in 2001, for U.S. national security. China is a smarter adversary, and their policy... I mean, and they've even said this openly, it's not to confront the United States openly, militarily. It's about slowly, incrementally pushing the United States out of places that they want to dominate. It's not, they do not want an open shooting war with the United States. And they're very careful about calibrating their, their foreign policy and their military policies that weren't, that they're not going to trigger something like, you know, like Pearl Harbor. You know, that's yeah. an extreme example. They're not, they're not going to go to those lengths because that would be counterproductive for them. I know you guys, you don't want to maybe talk about this, but I still think that the biggest threat for national security is Russia. It's not China. I'm sorry. Russia, Russia is failing. I mean, they have a crap economy. They're falling apart. They have a, a, their per capita um, growth rate is dismal. No, no, I'm not talking about economically wise. I'm talking about national security, the disrupting the stuff. I'm, see, I found it extremely troubling. Now, the latest news of these target assassinations that, you know, have happened before and we all remember Litvinenko and all the pictures of me, of him, you know, being completely bald in a hospital bed in the UK. But now, you know, I, uh, the fact that, that they keep on doing and this meddling of elections and shaping public opinion, I think that is extremely troubling. And I think they're succeeding. Regardless or not, they're six. And I feel also that the raise of extreme right wing throughout Europe is part of the Russian strategies to disrupt Western democracies. Oh, it absolutely is. And I feel that that is more troubling than China economic rise in so many different ways. And, well, that's my humble opinion, but I think that we should really take this Russian threat way, way more seriously than we are right now. Because obviously, you know, like social media opened up a new world for all of us. You know, I remember like Facebook reminded me just a couple of days ago that I've been on Facebook for 10 years. And I'm thinking and I tried to remember how did I use Facebook when I first opened the account Mm -hmm. and what happens now? And now how, you know, Facebook is able to shape, rightly or wrongly so, you know, public opinion yes. in a way that I've ne- we've never seen and never encountered and that's, before. That's actually one positive thing, I think, that came out of this last election is that people have finally woken up to the notion of how easy it is to manipulate public opinion, how to manipulate your emotions using social media. And people are just at the very, I like feel like the very first stages of like, I don't want to say unplugging themselves, but like inoculating themselves to electronic propaganda. Although, you know, I think it's right now the way that the people who run these websites are combating it is kind of interesting and and in a scary way because they have their own agendas. I think Mark Zuckerberg, for example, feels in some way guilty for Trump getting elected because of the amount of like Russian propaganda and stuff. And, you know, for example, now I saw on Twitter, um, they just suspended Steven Crowder for posting some right wing video. Uh, You know, it's no I think when these sites first opened, people saw them as this like beacon of free speech. And now they're controlling certain things and saying, like, we don't want this type of speech on our website. We're going to stay away from these kinds of ads. 
and it it doesn't fall under free speech because these are comp- these are private companies right. owned by individuals. And if Mark Zuckerberg says, for example, Fox News is fake news, we want to put a warning before any of those links are posted. He has every right to. Yeah, they can. And then they he and this organization could. Um, influence public opinion based on their own agendas. And this is like the bigger conversation that's been around really. I mean, I remember reading about this in the 1990s is just like the rise of transnational corporations. And like when you have these corporations that are so big and so powerful, it raises the question of like, okay, Ian, great. You have freedom of speech, but you have no voice. Like you can't, you know, you have to ask some massive corporation, um, you know, for permission and it brings up the question of like how much room is there in society for individual choice, free will, you know, things like this. Yeah, but it's also true. I mean, if you think about the trajectory of Facebook, I, I, again, I remember when I first opened the account, it was mainly to be in contact with people that were living far away. Yeah, see photos of their kids. Like to talk to your aunt. Yeah, or that talk kind of to thing. my aunt yeah. or my family or whatever, you know. Right now, the reality is that there has been a major failure from media organizations. And uh, and it's also true that I think that we developed these things that if we believe that the moon is pink, okay? <laughs> hey, there's people who believe the earth is flat. Uh, or the earth is <laughs> flat, exactly. You're going to go on the internet and you're going to find something that is going to support your idea. Yes. So this is the part, I think, that it really kind of the game changer. is like there is, I don't feel that you know, it's like Facebook or Twitter, or that which is mainly used by journalists and politicians, by the way. <laughs> but it's true. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's not a question of influence. It's just you're going to find whatever you want to find. And then Facebook works with an algorithm. I don't know if you know yeah, this. You, you know, it's like you're, you're going to see over and over and over again the same people yep. that you interact with. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what is wrong with it. Yeah, it's an echo chamber then. Yeah. And and also, you know, they did talk about post-election because of the results, because of the influence on social media. Like I said, this whole idea of we're going to crack down on fake news. Well, then who's the arbiter of what is and is not fake news? Yeah. I, I don't want someone deciding that. And there's plenty of fake news that's posted. But I'm just, I'm wondering who decides. I mean, there's... There's stuff that you've posted before that people have said fake news that didn't turn out to be fake sure. news, you know? So I, I... I mean, any news you don't like is fake news, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah, according to our president, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but do, do you remember, like, the pizza thing? Yeah, the, the pizza, pizza gate stuff, yeah. The pizza gate, and that got completely viral, and it was untrue. It was, like, it was actually untrue. And how do you do that? I don't think there is a real solution for it besides people getting smarter or maybe read something else besides their Facebook and Twitter feed. I but, have no idea. And, and I agree with that. But then, for example, when I talked about this on the show with Danielle Bezier, all right, Lester Holt from NBC. Most people, you know, although they might say left wing, consider NBC a good source for news for the most part. He went to what he thought was some North Korea training camp for oh, the yeah. Olympics, and it turns out he was completely duped. 
that was fake news from a mainstream media. Source. Yeah, but I mean that's yeah, different. but that was a people, mistake. Yeah, people screw yeah. up. Any journalist is going to make mistakes over their career. I mean, that, that's going to happen. I mean, you're looking for like a perfect no, but I'm just saying. Like I just my only point is like who decides what is fake news? Yeah, yeah. Not but it's news. different because I think that the, now the main wariness is that you can you have evidence of Russian just putting out like stuff that are not real in order to meddle with elections. And that is, I think, the troubling part. And it's not, you know, everybody makes mistakes. If you work, you do make mistakes. Then it's going to happen that, you know, exactly, you know, as Jack said, you know, journalists, we're all human after all, after all and we can make a, a mistake. But then, you know, like, it's different because you, hopefully, as a journalist, not necessarily you want to manipulate you know, public opinion in their own in your own way in order to have your candidate win or not your candidate or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that that is troubling. So, cut the long story short, do not believe what everything you read on Facebook because it might yeah. be fake news. Check other sources. Check other sources. I say believe almost none of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know that we're wrapping things up here, but I wanted to get into a completely different topic real quick. And I know that this is neither of your area of expertise, but being that it's like a, a big topic right now, I'd kind of like to hear both your opinions of just our president, our administration meeting with Kim Jong-un. It's completely unprecedented and... People are very opinionated on it. Well, it remains to be seen if it's even going to happen because we've seen how much flip flopping is happening, and you know, in our government right now. Um, I would not do it. Um, I think it just lends credibility to to the regime. Um, and the Kim, the Kim regime, it is a criminal regime. Um, and I'm open to diplomatic um, communications with that regime because. I mean, I, I support diplomacy with any country, but I don't think there's any reason why the, our president has to meet with their president. Do you think we're being played for a photo op of some sort? Yes, because when you think yes, of like are. Kim Jong Il, I mean, met with Bill Clinton when there were two journalists no, over there. No, yeah, no, they never and, met. And no. there's the photo op. No, no, no. It wasn't. It none American president in the past three decades I, have ever met. No, with. not while he was president. Not while he was president. Yeah. We are talking a completely different thing. No, but know? I'm saying that that my point was that, so when those two journalists, it was uh, Laura Ling, right? Not Lisa Ling. Lisa Ling Jimmy assistant. Carter went over there, too. Jimmy Carter, yes. But Kim Jong-il at the time wanted to get a photo op with former President Clinton. And, like, I'm just saying, this is what they do. They like to get a photo op. Yeah. It adds But you know why they want to have a photo op? Because it gives a legitimacy to the regime. Once Donald Trump is going to meet Kim Jong-un, that means that he recognizes him as a head of state. Yes. And that is what the danger here is about. Because once you recognize the regime, then, you know, you have to start negotiating. And, that, you know, the outcome, let's say that Donald Trump is going to meet Kim Jong-un. Like, the United States doesn't have an ambassador in South Korea. He hasn't filled the post. The uh, highest official the, uh, for, South, the, for the Korean Peninsula resigned two weeks ago. So there is no high official being able to guide the president through a very complicated meeting. And Trump obviously isn't prepared for Obviously Trump isn't this. prepared uh, according to you know reports about what happened in the gist of this meeting 
it's incredible. So basically, he walked in a meeting. He wasn't supposed to be there. There was a South Korean officials, you know, trying, you know, uh, to negotiate and understand what could be the four steps. And they said something like, ah, yes, Kim Jong-un wants to meet you. And he was like, okay, let's do it. And everybody was like, whoa, without even consulting anybody. Mm -hmm. And that's troubling. Because let's say that, you know, they meet and... um, and they do not get along, or they say whatever. Then could uh, that could escalate things? Uh, but you that's know? the thing is that I mean, Trump says so much stuff on a daily basis, and like he just made some off the cuff comment in that meeting. He can change his mind, you know, at the drop of a hat. At no, any now moment. he can't really, you know, because also Mike Pompeo is in there, and it's very funny how you know the main proponent of that policy about, about talking, reopen diplomacy with, uh, with North Korea was Rex Tillerson, and then he sucked oh, in. Yeah. And it's <laughs> incredible. It's amazing. You know, it's like, well, it, he's not going to be able to see his own policy, how he's going to, you know, paved out. But I know that, you know, from my understanding is Mike Pompeo, the new Secretary of State, He's going to be there, he's going to help him, and uh, hopefully he's going to have a lot of uh, intelligence of being, you know, former CIA director, and he'll know more or less what to do. But my fear is, uh, besides of the political colors of Donald Trump, is that I feel that, you know, it really is not doesn't know what to do, and that I feel it's very dangerous. Well, it's interesting. I, I don't want to make a direct comparison, but, I mean, I, it reminds me of Putin in the sense that, there are like these two narratives. There's one narrative that like, you know, Vladimir Putin is this, uh, you know, evil, like mastermind, you know, he's like Cobra commander. Um, but then there's the other narrative is that Putin's really just making it up day to day. And just the way, you know, the, you know, I his, don't believe that. you don't think he's just kind of like coming in and kind of like, eh, no. and like his perception of risk is a little bit different than, you know, ours is. I think that as an officer of FSB, he's been highly trained to think, I had it's like a chess game. And, it is a chess game, and but you, it's nothing is improvised with Putin. I, I don't believe that. I honestly don't. But I, I'm not saying improvised so much. Uh, I'm saying I think they make brash, brash decisions that are not planned out like ten years in advance. That I, I think it could be said with Trump for sure because of the fact that. Uh, and it's you know I know in this audience there's a lot of people who are big fans of Trump. There's yeah. a lot of people who don't like Trump. But uh, being um, you know being uh, objective on this, the fact that recently on Twitter he was saying these things like Kim Jong Un has a nuclear button, but I have a bigger nuclear button, and Kim Jong Un calling him a dotard, which people had to look up what that meant, which was interesting. Like this does not set the stage for I want to have no, diplomatic relations. No, it doesn't really seem like two you know you know professionals, uh, heads of state. Meeting with but one think another. about Kim Jong Un. Finally, after three decades, after his father, his grandfather tried to meet an American president, here we are. Can you imagine how happy he is to not be, you know? Yeah. I'll be. I'll be. <laughs> you know, finally I made it. Hey. It's wild. It yeah. is a wild. It is. Well, we'll see how it plays out. Um, and I guess before we wrap up here, um, I am the revolution. When do we see this coming out? Any, you know, we're editing right now, so may if it's all, all shot though. Yeah, it's all shot. That's it. And 
hopefully by the fall of 2018. Does that mean fall of 2018, it'll be submitted to these film festivals and then, okay, and then yeah. something, hopefully Amazon, Netflix, yeah. uh, some, something. Who knows? Yeah, which we hope to see, of course. So you could you could see Benny online um, at benedetta-argentieri.com. I'll spell that out. Uh, and there's you maybe hear dogs in the background because they do allow dogs here at Alley, which I love. I feel like I talk to more dogs here than people, I, but I love dogs. Um, and so that's B-E-N-E-D-E-T-T-A dash A-R-G-E-N-T-I-E-R-I dot com at Ben Argentieri on Twitter. And that's just at Ben Argentieri. Um, and possible film, I'm saying it with the English Possible, yes. Possible? Or possible. I'm saying it like the Spanish way <laughs> because I never took Italian. There's one film that's done on there, there's one in the works, and then there's one that you're not involved with from what I've seen. Yes, there is, a, there is a, this documentary about plants and how, you know, the plants can talk to us and understand us it's not really my thing but (laughs) (laughs) but it's safe to say that this is not you know just war documentaries it's uh, you guys are going all across the board or or I should say you ladies because it's all female right no 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 my uh, the co-founders are both men Gotcha. Okay. I'm just thinking about, I guess, who was a part of I Am the Revolution. I Am the Revolution. All female. All female. Yeah. Which is awesome. I think that's really cool to see. I mean, there's been this whole um, outcry, especially with the Oscars and stuff, for more female directors, more female uh, documentary filmmakers. And you're all doing it on your own. This is not someone saying, you know, we need to set this up this way. This is as grassroots as it gets. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Also because, you know, it it was... it was never really a political move, but it was an access kind of question. So, of course, if you go in, especially this kind of, I don't want to use segregated, but in a way they are, men and women in these countries sure. are kind of segregated. Yeah. And if you have a DP, a director of photography and a cinematographer who is men, of course you're going to have less access. You're not going to be able to stay with your subject, your character, you know, during nighttime, during and you kind of need to be there in order to film a real kind of cinematographic documentary. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult. Then, of course, you can, you know, it's it's been a good fun. Well, that's why I think this this film's going to be interesting because what we the people we hear from so often, like the voices, are these affluent white women in Hollywood who have way more privilege than I'll ever have <laughs> talking about how, how bad things are. But in your documentary, you see women who like, they're dealing with some real shit. Like there are some <laughs> serious stuff that they're, that they're dealing with. And uh, like, they're not, it's not hashtag activism. They're actually like going out and doing things. Yeah. And you I know, think from Rajda picking up a rifle or leading a, a battle, um, to you know, the woman in Iraq or Afghanistan who are like actually getting engaged. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. You know, we were able to film parts. You know, in which you could see the practicality of what they were preaching. So let's say you know, especially or like or beside you know Rajda that we talked about extensively, you see you know like uh, Salai in Afghanistan. This woman shows up and has a terrible story very common in Afghanistan and she says you know what can I help you and then it brings her to a shelter to help her and uh, give her like a lawyer to advocate her case 
Although, you know, I don't want to enter into the legal Afghanistan system, mm. you know, because that it's a whole craziness thing. So of course, the women do not have any rights. But, you know, at least you start doing something and you see it. And I think that this is the strength of this documentary. You actually see what they're doing. It's not words at all. Sometimes you watch documentaries and say, ah, yes, we want democracy. Okay, how do you get there? Here we are, you know, and here you have the practicality. How do you actually struggle every day to have more rights for women? Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I know you are as well. Um, and once again, if you want to check out Our War, that's available now. Uh, and let Benny know what you think of it. Thanks for coming in. We appreciate it. Always good having you in the studio here. Um, and, you know, as we always say, we don't have enough females on the show, so it's like good to hear a female <laughs> perspective on things. It's true, though. I can, we can organize a, like a podcast with all the female team that was with me on, I don't know, Afghanistan or Syria. We'd love to do it, right? do that. I yeah. think it would be great. So, all right. Cool. Yeah, Thank that was you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.